The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Sucking on lemons, chasing Yankees across the Shenandoah Valley, sobbing over dying children, standing like a stone wall. All these stories are well known about Thomas Jonathan Jackson, a legendary Confederate general. But where did they come from? Who wrote them? What did they mean? Are they true? We'll find out today about the past history of Stonewall Jackson after his life from Wallace Heddle, author of Inventing Stonewall Jackson, a Civil War hero in history and memory. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful Friday afternoon in September 2011. It's the beginning, the second second show of our eighth season, so a new season underway. A new football season underway outside. The ECU Pirates prepare to play Virginia Tech tomorrow. Uh, And, of course, uh, speaking of ECU, even though we're coming to you today as ever from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, we're not speaking, we meaning me, our guest, anyone else, not speaking for the university or for anyone else's university, just for ourselves, whoever's on the show, because that's that's how we do it here. So, legal disclosure over with. We move forward to another season of Civil War Talk Radio. We started last week with uh, what turned out to be a very interesting talk about the rhetoric and memorialization in the form of the inscriptions on Confederate memorials throughout the state of Virginia, what I had feared would be a... Uh, a, a, I don't want to say tedious, but a, a dry reference work turned out to be a quite an interesting exercise in the interpretation of memorial rhetoric and uh, worth your inspection. And we follow that theme to some degree today as we look more at Civil War memory. Uh, 
But before going into that, uh, we look at more recent memories of the past. It was pointed out to me uh, in the past week that I did not do justice to the the uh, the story that was keeping everyone on edge uh, all through the summer. This, of course, was the, uh, uh, the summer of uh, the Women's World Cup in international soccer, for those who follow such things. Um, second only in world soccer importance, of course, to the North Carolina State Games over 50 men's tournament uh, in which the Greenville Stars sent uh, the team that we, we call the varsity to distinguish ourselves from the, the over 40 team or junior varsity. And it was... Uh, in the, the, it was after the last show last uh, June, I believe, that we played in this tournament, and I'm, I'm here to tell you we, we brought home the bacon. The over-50 stars won the tournament, uh, uh, winning uh, three out of four games, giving up only one goal in all four games, and uh, uh, upsetting those, those, those old guys from Raleigh and Charlotte, those other big cities that... Uh, uh, well, they, they, they've always beaten us in the past. We were pretty darn happy about that. So um, life goes on. The next tournament will be in December, and I'll keep you all updated on that. We'll probably play the same six teams over again. That's how it goes. As one famous baseball player said, and I forgot who it was, if the World Series is so important, why do they have to play it every year? Uh, and so it is with the men's over 50 tournament. We have to play it twice a year if possible. But enough of that. We're here to talk Civil War today and to learn about uh, uh, both the war and about future shows. A reminder is that you can go to the the single most interesting site on the entire World Wide Web. It's impedimentsofwar.org. www.impedimentsofwar, all one word. .org, where Mark Gaffney keeps the records of the show. You can download uh, from links there that take you right to World Talk Radio. Uh, headquarters, the link to the show you're listening to right now. And you can find out who's going to be on the show in the future as well, as well as see who's been on in the past. We've got some uh, very good shows lined up. Uh, today uh, will be interesting. Uh, uh, I know the book was interesting for me. I know you'll enjoy hearing about it. And then next week, no live show. The uh, Lincoln Studies Center in uh, Galesburg, Illinois at Knox College beckons with the Board of Directors annual meeting, so I'll be there uh, talking with some uh, some folks, uh, almost all of whom have been on the show at some point, uh, Edna Medford, uh, James Oaks, uh, Doug Wilson, not sure who else is going to be there this year, but they've all uh, been on before. Following that, we'll be back live September 23rd, uh, Wayne uh, Shy, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it entirely correctly. Uh, we'll be on to talk about West Pointers in the Civil War. Ann Marshall will follow that, uh, talking about Kentucky. And then uh, Robert Winstra on October 7th. And I must correct the error I made last week talking about his book. Uh, it's not uh, about Dole's Brigade at Gettysburg. Who would ever write such a book? It's about Iverson's Brigade at Gettysburg, of course. Um, same division, different brigade but uh, a very interesting one, and I had the chance to walk the ground uh, this summer where that brigade fought, and look forward to talking with him about that. So all kinds of interesting shows ahead, and I hope you'll join us for them. As always, your suggestions are welcome. Please feel free to uh, send me an email here at East Carolina University, ecu.edu. Uh, my 
email address is available from the university webpage, easily found there. And uh, also you're welcome, needless to say, to contribute uh, to the upkeep costs of the website uh, impedimentsofwar.org and to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, uh, where we take your money and buy books for me. It's a great system. Uh, at least I approve of it. And since you get a book out of it too, if you want, I'll send you a copy of All for the Regiment or uh, Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. And you can uh, have either of those inscribed if you wish. Uh, for sending $20, use the PayPal donation button on the Impediments of War uh, webpage, and I'll be happy to send that off to you. So, uh, Lots going on there in the Civil War world and in Civil War talk radio ahead. Uh, but today we go back. Now, my favorite part of the week, and I put behind me the uh, burdens of the ever-present uh, budget cutting and uh, faculty who would like a lighter teaching load just this upcoming semester, except it's always 28 out of 30 who request that each semester. Uh, the, the students who want to know if this is going to be on the quiz and all the other things that, that one gets to deal with. I'm, please don't mistake uh, what I'm saying. Being a history professor is a dream job, uh, and I, I don't mean to, uh, to kvetch about it unnecessarily. But the best part is putting all of the, the momentary cares aside and talking history, and that's what we get to do now. Uh, with the author of Inventing Stonewall Jackson, A Civil War Hero in History and Memory. Uh, his name is Wallace Heddle. Uh, Dr. Heddle, are you there? Yeah, hi, Jerry. Hi. Um, glad you could join me on the show today. Uh, uh, do you go by uh, Wallace? Wally, what would be appropriate for you? I like Wallace. Wallace sounds good. I like that. Uh, well, I, I'm very glad you're here, and I'm very glad I'm holding on to your book, which I, I have in my hand. Uh, you, you, uh, you and I corresponded back in the spring, and I was uh, fascinated by the, the topic you had, and we got the show organized, and your publisher said they'd dash off a copy uh, to me. And, uh, you know, we have the Civil War Book Fund. I, I do take the listener's money and buy books, but when possible, I try to con them out of the publisher. <laughs> and your publisher was happy to agree, but then... You know, this is, what is the clause that says the war is simple, but the simplest thing is very difficult? And it was hard to get the book, uh, one thing after another. And, and you finally intervened last week and set your publisher on the, the, the path of righteousness to get that book out. And it arrived here yesterday morning. So I've been reading frantically, uh, but, but very pleasurably to get uh, to where we can talk about it today. And it's a handsome book. I'm glad I have it here. Thanks. So... Um, well, let's start with you, if, if I may, because I haven't, we haven't had the pleasure of, of, of crossing paths on the, the Civil War trail to, to, that I can recall. Uh, you teach uh, history? I do. And I'm an American historian, and I've taught the Civil War and Reconstruction for the last 15 fall, um, and that's what I enjoy. You're at the University of Northern Iowa. Is that where you are still? Uh, yes, in Cedar Falls, Iowa. So, is that where you're? Are you from that part of the country originally? What's your your background? I am a lifelong Midwesterner, but I would see the different regions of the Midwest as very distinct. I grew up in Muskegon, Michigan, 
um, which is uh, near Grand Rapids. And then I went and lived for about 12 or 13 years in Chicago, getting my education. And then about 15 years ago, I moved out to the prairie, and here I am. Well, you know, as soon as you said Muskegon, I reflectively looked down at the palm of my right hand. Uh, having grown up uh, in Detroit, uh, all Michiganders know when you discuss where you're from, you hold out your hand as a map and point. Uh, so you're from the, the fleshy part of the ball of the hand where Grand Rapids is, uh, the lower right left on corner. Lake Michigan. That's right on the lake. Michigan's best feature. Yes, well, it's a, it's a beautiful part of the state. My wife is from Grand Rapids, and... Uh, uh, I've, I've been to the, the western part many times, and Chicago also uh, uh, a wonderful place. But the prairie is different. I was uh, the same. I guess I ask this question because uh, it, it comes up. It comes up here in North Carolina, where I work now, more than it did in, in the Midwest. Uh, about why one is interested in the Civil War. Did you have relatives in it? Were your people in the war? So let me ask you that question. My people. Um, none of my ancestors, to my knowledge, was in the United States um, during the 1860s. Um, so I have no link like that. And I never really set out to be a Civil War historian. It wasn't a plan. I um, started college as an economics major hmm. and found that um, deadly dull. <laughs> So I moved on to history and spent a lot of time studying British history. And it wasn't until my last year of school that I really got this passion for the Civil War. Hmm. So it, it, it came to you later in life than, than some, not a, not a childhood interest necessarily. Not a childhood interest. Huh. Um, I was, I have to say, if, if, if I was going to psychoanalyze myself, um, I have been interested in the South, and my writing on the Civil War has all been about the Confederacy. And when I was growing up, my father was Pentecostal, um, which put him in a church that was overwhelmingly Southern. Uh, so uh, I guess that, that's a good entree to Stonewall Jackson. Um, uh, did, did this topic come to you in part because of his religious interest? Honestly, you know, it's hard to figure out where these things come from. I think everyone, including me, is fascinated by Jackson's quirkiness. Um, he's an eccentric. Um, and about 12 or so years ago, I was uh, reading, looking for a new topic to write a book on, and I read a um, James Robertson's, uh, or Bud Robertson's, um, massive biography of Jackson. And I also read a book by Charles Royster of LSU um, called The Destructive War. Mm -hmm. And these two books presented such um, divergent interpretations of a fascinating person, um, and it made me want to know more. What? Uh, how did they differ? Um, the difference um, really lies in the two authors' assessment of Jackson's character 
um, Royster, and it's Royster's book that I like the best, mm-hmm. Royster's book, The Destructive War, um, it paints Jackson as um, a loose cannon. Um, and it paints him as someone who was almost recklessly audacious uh, and someone who would be willing to fight under a black flag. Um, so he comes off in Royster as a very harsh person. And then you go to Robertson, which is um, over a thousand pages, massively researched, informed by a lifetime of scholarship. And you get some of Jackson's brutality. Any general in this war is going to be brutal. But you also get Robertson's view of Jackson as a family man and a, a kind of, I wouldn't go so far as to say Robertson has affection for Jackson, but it's something close. Um, historians have an expression, the biographer's disease, and it can happen to all biographers. You spend enough time with someone and you could fall in love with them. Um, and Robertson's an extraordinarily talented historian, but I think he did kind of fall in love with Stonewall. And so I wanted to see um, what my own view would be. That's interesting. I can recall discussing that kind of issue in graduate school, about sympathy for one subject and whether it was appropriate. Uh, So you would argue in in Robertson's case, uh, it, it may have gone beyond the line where he could maintain an objective view of of his subject, of Stonewall Jackson. Yeah, although I have to say in his defense that it's really, really hard to draw that line. Um, You're working with um, limited documents. Um, Every historian draws on their imagination. Um, And part of the biographer's craft is to create an understanding of uh, their subject's character. So, um, yeah, I think maybe he went a little a little farther than I would have wanted to go in terms of characterizing Jackson's um, softer side. Um, but I think it was legitimate for him to go there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder... Uh, you can imagine there are some historical characters who are, you know, clearly, uh, uh, you know, dislikable or bad or evil for that matter, where a biographer might not suffer from that. But even there, I guess there, there's there's a risk. But Jackson uh, is, is clearly more complex than that. One can't just say he's, he's all good, although some of his biographers may may trend that way, uh, nor certainly all bad. Um, well, let's uh, follow your, your your book through then uh, chronologically, because but no, let me let me take a different approach. I want to think about this. The we don't actually know a huge amount about Stonewall Jackson. Um, obviously, he didn't survive the war, uh, but you point out in in your book that that people didn't even know much about him when he was alive. And There's a seemed, lot of mythology during the war. Um, And I think that's partly a function of the fact that Jackson didn't allow newspaper reporters into his camp or give interviews. 
Um, and there was massive curiosity about Jackson because of his extraordinary success, especially in the Shenandoah Valley campaign of 1862. And um, Jackson was from a different era, and I don't think he really gave much thought to the idea of um, projecting a public image. Um, so, yeah, during the war, there's a lot of curiosity. Um, Union soldiers are buying biographies of Jackson at quite a clip. So, so they just don't know... Did he write a lot of letters during the war? He he writes letters to his wife, of course. Um, but those are very circumspect letters because of the danger of having them captured um, by the enemy. Um, so those letters uh, are useful, um, but a little bit dry. Um, he writes to several congressmen who are friends of his um, trying to get a couple of projects going. Um, one, a more strict observance of the Sabbath. Um, but he's a very, very busy man. And many of the reports, he's supposed to write reports of major engagements, but he doesn't always do it. And many of the most important ones are being written uh, after his death. Um, so you know, there, there is, if you're thinking about Jackson as a general um, who can be understood by battlefield success and lines on a map, there's a fair amount of material. If you're looking at Jackson's character, which I think was the difference between those two historians I referenced earlier, um, Charles Royster and James I. Robertson, um, if you're looking for character, it's very hard to pin down. Yes, I, that, that, that is that elusive quality that you know, might come out in, in writings, would come out in others' yeah, stories. Yeah, you know, this, this quality really is um, a problem that is not distinctive to Jackson. It is uh, really shared by a lot of biographers. I talk right in the conclusion of the book about a great historian, Edmund Morris, who was the authorized biographer of Ronald Reagan. And Morris spent eight years hanging around the White House. Um, he had access to all kinds of papers uh, and to Reagan himself. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, he couldn't figure out what to write. Um, so he ended up writing a fictionalized book on Reagan because in spite of his exposure to Reagan, he just, he just couldn't come to terms with it. Well, I suppose in some ways it's fortunate for us as historians that that's true because it, it keeps us uh, with, with fresh challenges all the time. What we're going to do now is take a short break. We'll come back in just a moment and talk more. Uh, today we're talking with Wallace Heddle author of Inventing Stonewall Jackson. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness is delighted to finally have the opportunity to fulfill the requests of our many guests and listeners to extend the Mind, Brain, and Body experience to a second hour. Tune in for The Lyceum, Critiques of Ancient and Modern Understanding with Dr. Michael Kell. The purpose of this show is to explore and expand upon mankind's continual efforts to explain why we exist. Join us each week as we continue our fireside chats with some of the most remarkable thinkers living today. The Lyceum airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Wallace Heddle. He's the author of Inventing Stonewall Jackson, a Civil War Hero in History and Memory. And memory is certainly one of the the uh, leading forms of, of historical writing these days. There's a lot being written about the ways in which we remember the Civil War. And sometimes it's worthwhile, uh, as, as uh, Wallace, as you do in, in this book, to go back to some of the things we all thought we knew. Uh, with Stonewall Jackson, as you were saying at the end of our first sec- uh, section today, it's really hard to know much about his character. It's really hard to uh, to know who he was as a person, and even the things we, the stories everybody thinks they know about him uh, can sometimes be hazy. Starting with his nickname, um, uh, he, even during wartime, there was controversy about exactly how he got uh, to be called Stonewall Jackson or what that meant. Can you talk about that? Sure, um, Jackson. In, during the war years and into the first couple of decades after the war, Jackson is called Old Jack, just as much as he's called Stonewall. Um, Stonewall is something, um, it's really out there during the Civil War, but historians have kind of dropped the Old Jack nickname and just gone with Stonewall. Um, and it, it, you can see why it's such a dramatic and forceful um, name. You can't think of a more powerful image than a stone wall. And this comes from the first battle of Bull Run, the first major battle of the war, um, where Jackson really distinguishes himself. And the conventional story, um, which might be correct, uh, is that Barnard B., uh, a South Carolina general, um, he saw his men um, hesitating or starting to retreat, 
and he declares, um, there stands Jackson like a stone wall, let us determine to die here, and we shall conquer. Now, that's, that's a very remarkable and eloquent thing to say. Um, we can't confirm that with B, um, because he died a couple of days after the battle um, for being wounded on the field. Um, but the, the other thing that struck me about this um, let us determine to die here and we shall conquer, um, I'm not sure who he said it to. Um, nobody knows. And um, it's, if he's shouting this to his whole regiment, um, it would be quite a mouthful. <laughs> There's another version, and, and this version is more common um, in early histories of Jackson, um, in which you have B um, shouting, there stands Jackson like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginian. As a matter of fact, I have a coffee mug from the Virginia Military Institute where Jackson taught uh, in the 1850s, Jackson taught there. And um, rally behind the Virginians strikes me as something that a proud South Carolinian like Barnard B. wouldn't say. Um, this um, second sentence, rally behind the Virginians, uh, is written first uh, in the first major biography of Jackson. Um, by a man named Robert Louis Dabney, and Dabney, of course, was a Virginian. And it, it's not like Virginia is is lacking in, in either Virginia or South Carolina are lacking in self-esteem. Uh, neither one is going to put themselves in second place, rally behind the other guys. Uh, so, what, what about the possibility that B was actually criticizing Jackson? You know. That's a story that goes a long way back, and I don't buy it. I don't. When you're looking for that kind of quote, and, and the idea was that B was disgusted with Jackson, that Jackson was not being active, and therefore was just standing there like a stone wall. Um, what you have to do is look to find who said. Who said it first? You know, who's the first person to report um, that B um, said this um, and that B meant this as an insult? And the first reports you get written down um, about this are more than a decade after the war. Um, so that idea that Jackson was inert and therefore a stone wall. Um, it's an interesting story, but I don't buy it. You mentioned Robert Louis Dabney. You said he was one of the first biographers of Jackson. Um, given how little material there there was on on Jackson, that he, of course, was was mortally wounded at Chancellorsville in 1863, and uh, you know didn't write memoirs, didn't. Didn't confide much in in anyone, in his fellow staff officers, uh, his own staff officers, or his fellow generals, or anyone. Um, uh, who was Dabney, and how did he come to write a biography? Well, Dabney was an extraordinarily brilliant 
Presbyterian theologian who taught at Hampton Sydney in Virginia in the, in the seminary. And he, like Jackson, um, was an old school Presbyterian. Um, so uh, and a guy who's articulating um, what was even then um, a very conservative faith. Um, Jackson and Dabney were friends. Um, their wives were cousins, and um, they enjoyed spending time together. Um, Dabney's basically a, a real smart college professor, and his job starts to wither up during the war as all the young men go off to fight. And at that point, Stonewall Jackson invites Dabney um, to come and be his chief of staff. And it's a ridiculous decision. Um, Dabney's got no military experience. He's not temperamentally inclined to join the military. And to give you an idea how this plays out, um, Dabney shows up at camp um, right before the Shenandoah Valley campaign. And he is wearing um, a beaver um, hat while carrying an umbrella to protect himself from the sun. Uh, and the, stu the troops begin to mock him. Uh, and, of course, you can see why. I, I'm just picturing my colleagues here, who I esteem highly, uh, and, and trying to picture plucking someone from the ranks of college professors and saying, okay, you're chief of staff for the Shenandoah Valley campaign. Get on a horse and go. Um, and there's not a lot of promising material, to be honest, uh, in this department. I don't know what yours is like. Uh, but, but the <laughs> Some idea of us would have to lose a little weight. <laughs> yeah, that would probably help, certainly. You'd get a, need a Clydesdale for some of us to ride, maybe. But it really is bizarre that, that Jackson... Why did he pick uh, Dabney? Were, were they friends before the war? They were friends. Um, they lived in different cities, so I wouldn't think of them as close friends. Dabney had spent, in 1861, a couple of months as a chaplain, and Jackson had heard Dabney preach. Um, he wrote home about what an extraordinary thinker Dabney was. And, you know, my theory, there's a couple of things going on. Um, the um, presence of Dabney as a chief of staff um, it's actually the idea of Jackson's wife, Mary Anna. And I think that the reason she wanted Dabney in camp with her husband is because she saw he had extraordinary literary skills. Um, he, could, he could write the reports that would make Jackson famous, write the biography that would someday be written, um, and so she may have been kind of prescient um, in that regard. Uh, the other thing, though, is that I think Jackson truly needed a friend. Jackson had his staff, but they were all men um, in their 20s. Most of them were on their mid-20s. And How Jackson, old was Jackson at that time? Jackson dies at, at, at 39, okay. in 1863, so... Math's not my strong suit. I guess. 
But late 30s, we'd say. Yeah. Um, The Jacksons is a little older, and um, he treats Dabney. Dabney says this. He treats him like a friend um, rather than as um, a colleague. And I think that Jackson is comfortable with with the result, which is basically that he doesn't have a chief of staff for a while. Uh, and Jackson was always a micromanager, so I don't think that bothered him much. Hmm. Now, in one sense, then, uh, Anna Jackson is really the... Uh or the press agent or the, the publicist or, or, or puts the publicist in the right place to make her husband famous. Yes, and Jackson worries about that uh, quite early in the war. After First Bull Run, you know, Jackson's an obscure man at the time of that battle. And the hero of First Bull Run, if he had to name one on the Confederate side, um, would be PGT Beauregard. Um, he's the one who shows up in the newspapers the most. Um, and Anna's upset about that. Um, she wants to go to the newspapers and report that her husband won the battle for the Confederacy. And Jackson sends her a couple of letters saying, please don't worry about misrepresentations of me. Um, So he's playing the role of the modest man, and she's the one who wants to to promote her husband. Um, But she's she's a very smart woman, and I think that um, her choice of Dabney was a very good one. He wrote an extraordinarily eloquent biography, which is still in print, um, and still selling, I understand, pretty well. Um, One of the things he says in that biography is we get the uh, uh, the, 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 the word, the slogan, or uh, motto, what, what, uh, maxim is the word I'm looking for, uh, the maxim, you may be whatever you resolve to be. Yes. Is deeply associated with Jackson. Uh, he didn't write those words. Uh, how, how were they... How is it that, that they come to be associated with him? Well, he copied them, those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackson kept a small book of Maxim. Um, and it's hard to know how important that book was to him. Um, Dabney uh, looked at the Maxim book, and as he's doing the biography, he plucks out one phrase which is, you may be whatever you resolve to be, which is um, a good slogan. Um, it's a slogan the Army could use today. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, be all it's, you can be. It's, yeah, it's very close to be all you can be. Um, but So Jack, Dabney plucks out this one maxim out of a dozen others, and... Um, what I was able to find uh, is um, something that I was enabled to find because of Bud Robertson finding Jackson's Maxim book. It had been lost for decades, and Robertson turned it up at Tulane University of all places. Huh. 
And this Maxim book, um, when you get it in its totality, um, you can look around and see what Jackson is saying and guess where it comes from. And it turned out that the that the maxim that Dabney liked so much about being whatever he resolved to be, um, that uh, was part of a bigger passage in a northern book by an abolitionist. Really? Called The Young Man's Guide, um, which was written by um, William Andrus Alcott, who happened to be uh, Louisa May Alcott's uncle, to give you an idea of the sort of social circles that he traveled in. So um, it turned out that Jackson's whole Maxim book, which historians have been fascinated with, um, came either from this young man's guide, um, which is a guide to, to manners and hard work and things like that. That was part of the Maxim book. And then the rest was from Ben Franklin. Hmm. Uh, and so you've got excerpts out of two books that instead of what historians had thought existed, which was little maxims that Jackson labored over and wrote down over an extended period of time, because these maxims all come from the same two places, um, it's quite possible that Jackson wrote this up in an afternoon and forgot about it. But Dabney um, publicizes those words, and he uses it to capture that Jackson has a strong worldly virtue. I mean, he's a Christian man, but he's also an an ambitious man. And I think that, that slogan, you may be whatever you resolve to be, captures the positive side of Jackson's ambition. Now, if Dabney is the first great biographer of, of Jackson, um, the second one is certainly John Eston Cook. And uh, I think we're going to take a break shortly. Uh, but let me ask you about uh, Cook and his influence. In particular, uh, what I gathered from, from your research here is that much of, much of the famous uh, eccentricity of Stonewall Jackson can be traced to uh, to what Cook wrote, uh, not necessarily to what happened during the war. Is that a fair uh, fair thing That's to say? That's a fair assessment. You can't find it in the newspapers. What, what are some of the examples of these things that, that, that Cook came up with? Um, Jackson was famously known for sucking lemons in the heat of battle. Um, he was thought to, to talk to himself or to pray out loud um, during combat, um, jo- Jackson had some peculiar ideas about diet, um, which were not unusual in the 19th century. There's a lot of this is the century of the graham cracker, um, and so Jackson's not alone in having eccentric ideas there. Jackson was a quiet man, uh, and I think that that probably, you know, the degree of shyness there. Um, but that was taken for um, Jackson being odd. 
being unable to relate to ordinary people. Um, he had big feet. Um, the thing about these stories, of course, is that they're very difficult to confirm. And to the extent that Anna Jackson commented on these stories, um, they seem to be false. Um, Jackson, in Cook's version, and Cook's version is exaggerated over time, it becomes the sort of person who wouldn't be able to lead um, a large, ambitious organization like a corps in the Army of Northern Virginia. Um, so my guess is that most of these eccentricities are exaggerated. And the biggest imperative on the part of John Easton Cook um, is to sell books. And, and he was good at doing that. He was We're going to take another. I wish I was better at it. <laughs> Don't we all? We'll take a short break now, and we'll come right back with more with Wallace Heddle, author of Inventing Stonewall Jackson. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be back shortly with more Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Tune in to Green with Envy every week for the most up-to-date information about living a green, fulfilling life. With a mix of serious inquiry and engaging humor, host Peter Terween and his guest experts uncover topical issues and refreshing stories that'll keep you informed and inspired. We'll want to hear from you during the live program as well. Green with Envy is broadcast live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Wallace Heddle. He's the author of Inventing Stonewall Jackson, a Civil War hero in history and memory. Uh, we've been looking at how some biographers of Jackson have shaped what we know of this uh, famous Confederate general, the story of how he got his nickname, the eccentricity story, sucking on lemons, and so on. Uh, you point out Bud Robertson in his, his very large Jackson biography uh, made this sort of common sense observation, where would you get lemons in the Confederacy? Yeah. Uh, so so there's that, that maybe points out how credulous people are uh, willing to believe a story for, for decades without really stopping to think about it. But after the, the Dabney and Cook biographies, uh, uh, Cook portrays Jackson as uh, somewhat as, as Charles Royster, who you referred to earlier, uh, uh, has done more recently as, as a very fierce and relentless, uh, even fanatical warrior uh, driven by his uh, 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 religion as well as his, his desire to defeat the enemy. And then in contrast, you've got the life and letters of Stonewall Jackson that, that Mariana Jackson prepared. Uh, how did his wife shape the Jackson story? Anna Jackson um, was not much of a writer uh, in terms of her literary skill. Um, but she was um, just 
terribly dedicated to preserving her husband's memory. Um, by the 1890s, she was also broke. And so she writes a book on her husband, uh, I think partly because she wants to memorialize him and partly because she needs the money quite badly. Um, her book, um, the best part about her book is Jackson's Letters. Uh, it's a 19th century life and letters kind of book, which is very common at that time. Um, but her book is important for the letters, uh, but beyond that, it's important for establishing a domestic image of her husband. Um, she had read about the terrible man uh, who was called a fanatic by his opponents within the Confederacy. He was called a fanatic behind closed doors. And that just really outraged her. So she talked about their home life and how affectionate he was. Uh, and how he cared for children. And she talked most memorably, most memorably about Jackson's leadership of uh, Sunday school for African Americans, which he carried on in the decade before the Civil War. Um, these stories from Anna Jackson are um, inspiring. Um, they may be a little exaggerated, but um, biography is often a little exaggerated. They may not read as politically correct stories today, but there are a lot of people who are quite inspired by these stories, and you can see that if you go on to Amazon, that there are a number of books about Jackson as a Christian hero. Um, rather than as a brutal general. And I think the fact that that's true is because of Anna Jackson. I'm, I'm holding a book in my hand here called Stonewall Jackson, The Black Man's Friend. Yes. Uh, which seems to fit that mold in terms of uh, playing up to the Sunday school element and so on. Uh, it's the kind of book that I, I got sent to me by a publisher unsolicited and normally would have just sort of tossed aside or put in the, the pile of Civil War memory uh, items, but it's got a blurb on the back from James I. Robertson, Jr., uh, endorsing this view. And I guess my other thought is, if Stonewall Jackson is the black man's friend, then you don't really need any enemies. Um, you know, someone's going to fight to preserve uh, the Confederacy. But nonetheless, uh, uh, it, it's due to Anna Jackson that we have this view. Uh, let me ask about a more recent portrayal, um, uh, and one that I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. And that's when you discuss in, in your, uh, your last uh, full chapter, uh, gods and generals. Uh, to some extent, the movie, uh, or to some extent, the book uh, by... Uh, Jeff Shara, but but more so the movie that, that Ron Maxwell uh, created. Uh, how does Gods and Generals bring the? What kind of Jackson does that bring to us, and, and where does that fit in this, this story? Interesting question. Um, Jeff Shara's book, which becomes the basis for the movie, is better than the movie, um, but 
people are more likely to see films than they are to read books at this point in our history. And so I decided to concentrate on the film. Um, the film, Gods and Generals, um, was done and released after I had begun my research. So I was quite excited um, that it came out. Mm -hmm. And that film, um, it shows Jackson as a warrior, um, but it also picks up Anna, Jackson, uh, Anna Jackson's view that her husband was this soft and affectionate domestic man, especially though bothersome about Gods and Generals, is a scene which portrays Jackson uh, at the time of the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 62, um, Jackson at that time is shown talking to his uh, free black personal servant, a man named Jim Lewis. And in this scene, Jackson is endorsing the idea that um, there will be a Confederate emancipation of the slaves in the beginning of, of Confederate black soldiers. And you know, that idea was discussed in the Confederacy, um, but not seriously discussed until very late in the war. And there's no reason to think that Jackson would have shared it. And I think it does Jackson a disservice to pretend that he was some sort of um, racial egalitarian or that he would have joined the NAACP had he lived um, he's, he's a person from a different time. Um, I've got no interest in judging him morally. Um, I don't view him as an immoral man, but more, more important, um, as a historian um, from a society that has its own problems, um, I don't see that I have the moral authority to condemn Jackson. But we've got to get it right. And it's worth knowing that he was a slaveholder. Um, he was a Breckenridge voter in 1860, which made him, for all intents and purposes, a secessionist. He believed strongly in that slavery was a good, just institution, one that he wanted to improve, but um, nevertheless, a just institution. And what I think happens with the film Gods and Generals is they try so hard uh, to humanize Jackson that they make him a character with 21st century sensibilities. And that's really false, uh, I mean, to the whole historical project. When you consider the lengths that, that the director went to to get the uniforms right and the muskets right and all the little details right, to then transport Jackson's character and, and, and ideas and political self into the 21st century really undercuts all that. It does. I mean, to be fair to the filmmakers, they, they really tried hard mm -hmm. to get historical accuracy. I mean, they did that um, with the uniforms and all the technical details. But they also did, did it by um, bringing in Jackson's servants. So you've got a more multicultural view of the war. Um, they do portray Anna Jackson 
They don't do a particularly good job of it, but they were trying to make the cast more varied um, than what you would see in the film Gettysburg. And yet uh, they, they don't quite uh, accomplish their ultimate historical goal. Uh, we are as close to accomplishing our goal as we're going to get today. We're unfortunately out of time. But uh, Wallace, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. and uh, Thank you so sharing. much for having me. And listeners, you'll want to take a look at Inventing Stonewall Jackson, A Civil War Hero in History and Memory by Wallace Heddle. Very interesting book. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management